Hey, everybody. Hey, that was really nice. Thanks. Um, it's good to be with you. We are uh, continuing our series on the different names of God. Uh, we've been doing this for a couple of weeks, and we chose the names of God on purpose because names have power. We know this in a good way, and sometimes we know it in a bad way. Names can help us to, to inform who we are, and names can form us. From the very beginning, God has given people the authority, the responsibility, the power to name things. You can name this a thing, and whatever you call it, that will be its name. And sometimes we've done that really well, and sometimes we haven't. And some of you have, been, uh, have an awareness of this uh, because at some point somebody called you something and it hurt. Right? Somebody called you a name and it stuck. Somebody called you a name and whether anyone else has ever called you that or not, whether it was last week, last year, or 10 years ago, or 50 years ago, that name has formed you, has deformed you. Names have power. And the bad news is that sometimes people have called us things and they have hurt. But the good news is that even though God gave people the power to name things, he retained for himself the authority to rename them. In Isaiah 62, too, he says this. He says, uh, and you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Some of you have been called something and it hurt. And you need a new name. This isn't just kind of a one-time thing. This is what God does all the time. He's always in the business of renaming. And do you know why he renames? Every time God renames somebody, it is to bless them. And some of you, man, you just need to be blessed. Life has been hard. The last couple of weeks, months, years, moments have been hard. And if that's you, if the name that somebody has called you has stuck in a way that has harmed you, then I'm sorry. God wants to give you a new name. Because names can be good and names can bless. And this is the thing that God does all throughout Scripture. So Abram and Sarai become Abraham and Sarah. Jacob, which names means thief, stealer, taker, becomes one who wrestles with God, Israel. Saul becomes Paul. Probably my favorite example of where this happens in Scripture is the book of Hosea. It's a little tiny book, kind of in the middle-ish. Most people haven't read it. Uh, but the story of Hosea is God's people have been extraordinarily rebellious. I can relate to that. There's times when I'm extraordinarily rebellious. I don't feel like doing that. I just don't feel like it. And so the people have this name. They have been called Lo-Ami, not my people. And God says, today, I'm going to give you a new name. This is from Hosea 1.10. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, lo ami, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. That's a really good blessing. That's a really good renaming. The message puts it this way. In the very place where they were once named nobodies, they will be named God's somebody. You ever felt like a nobody? You ever have somebody tell you that you're a nobody, that you will amount to nothing, that your life is worthless, that you are worthless? 
Maybe you need a new name. Maybe you need to be told that you are God's somebody. Names have power, extraordinary power to form, to deform, to inform. Uh, a couple of things about me that are pretty fun. Um, I've, I've been here for about 10 months since September-ish. Um, I've got two kids. I'm married. Um, they're watching online. Hi, guys. Um, and uh, and so, so I've got two kids. One of them is Cody. He's about six. And I have a daughter named Ren. And they love to wrestle. Anybody else in here like love to wrestle with their dad or with their mom or with, with their kids? Right? No, yeah, okay, nobody? That's fine. Okay, well, my kids love to wrestle, so uh, you can come over to my house and wrestle with my kids. They will beat you. Um, so Cody, a couple of years ago, decided we needed wrestling names. So his wrestling name is The Puncher. He has a superpower. I bet you can guess what it is. And my wrestling name is Bad Bear. It's, it's why I'm wearing this shirt, Bad Bear, Right? When he called me Bad Bear for the first time, it didn't mean anything to me. It was just a name. But pretty quickly, it became my wrestling identity. And so when we wrestle, I've got my bear claws, and I growl like a bear, and I swing at them, and I throw them around. I am Bad Bear. And none of you knew that before today. (laughs) Right? That is my name. It is who I am. Is it everything about me? No. But it is who I am in that relationship, in that particular way. And names for God work similarly. God has lots of different names that he reveals about himself, and they tell us something about who he is. So, for example, a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, Ben told us that God is light. The light that shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not, cannot, will not, will never overcome it. And then last week, Todd told us that God's name is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. And I needed to hear that because I feel like I am one of the walking wounded and I need somebody to heal me every day. And uh, next week, Justin's going to be talking about Jesus, who is the cornerstone the one on which everything is built and the standard by which everything is measured. Names have power. They tell us something about God. Well, today we're learning a mouthful. Jehovah Mekodishkim. Can you guys say that with me? Jehovah Mekodishkim. Maybe one more time. Jehovah Mekodishkim. Anybody know what that means? Good job. I heard at least a couple of people say it right. It means God who makes you holy. What does holy mean? Well, holy can mean something kind of like super religious, right? Like a holy person or a holy place, right? We kind of have this idea of like holy things. And it can mean something kind of like moralistic or legalistic, right? Like, we have to do all of the right things. We have to follow all of the rules. Maybe somebody that wants you to follow all of the rules. Somebody that we might call holier than thou. And there's a sense that holy means those things. That it means like something super religious. And that it means something kind of like, um, like the person who follow, like, like, like a moralistic, legalistic idea. 
It's not wrong. But the word actually comes from the word kadosh, which means set apart, as in reserved, like set aside for a particular exact purpose. And we know something of what this is like because we make reservations all the time. Some of you may even have reservations after this for lunch, for Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Um, We know what reservations are, but that's not exactly the picture of what it means. It's more like something that is used for an exact purpose. Or maybe like if you have found something that is like, it, it just fits right. And the word that we use when that happens is perfect. This is the perfect outfit. It looks super good on me, right? Thank thank you. Wedding dresses. Like when you find a wedding dress, I'm, I'm, I'm a dude. I wore a tuxedo that I rented and threw back in a bag. But on a wedding day, brides take great pride in having the perfect wedding dress. Maybe you went on the perfect date or you had the perfect meal or the perfect vacation or maybe it was just a perfect sunset. Right? When something is really, really good and it is, it is exactly as we want it to be, it is perfect. It is the exact thing, exactly used as it was exactly made. It's perfect. And perfect sometimes makes us feel like, oh, yuck, because like, I'm not perfect and you're not perfect. And sometimes the word perfect, it just brings with it all kinds of mess. But actually, if you run into something that is really perfect, what you feel is deep joy and satisfaction. It's kind of like if you have ever used a tool, like the wrong tool, to do a task for a long time, right? So you've got a fork and you're trying to like blend Cool Whip or something like that, or you've got a handsaw and you're trying to build a house. It is exhausting and it is frustrating. And then all of a sudden, somebody hands you the right tool, the one that was made for exactly that purpose. And it's better. It's how I imagine the AAA guy feels every time he shows up to unlock somebody's car. Right? You know. You've been there. You've used a coat hanger, and you're frustrated, and you scratched your car, and you've broken that little seal thing, and you're, like, probably sweaty, and you just want to break the window. And then the AAA guy shows up, and he's got that tool, and he goes, boop, done. It's perfect. It's the exact thing, exactly used for the exact thing for which it was exactly made. It's perfect. Do you know what you were exactly made for? You were exactly made for God. You were exactly made for God. And when that that is what is described, the word that we use is holy, perfect. You were exactly made for God. Now, what do we do with something that was perfect that becomes imperfect? What do you do with it? Well, if it's easy to replace, you throw it away and you get another one. But if it's valuable, if it's precious, you restore it to its perfection. The imperfect can become perfect again. And so that, that is like when we talk about people, when we talk about holiness, we're talking about the purpose of the law. The law is designed to help us understand what perfection is, what holiness is, and to help us know how to be restored to perfection, to holiness. And the place that we find most of these laws is in the book of Leviticus. There's like lots of them. 
in there. I don't know if you've ever read the book, but it's full of laws. There's actually this one whole section called the Holiness Code. And it's like 10 chapters long. And it is law after law after law. And they cover a range of topics because there are a range of ways that we can become imperfect, unholy. There's lots of them. So, for example, this is from, um, this is from Leviticus 19, which is just one of uh, uh, several chapters, uh, which is just one of several chapters in there. <clears throat> okay. Honor your parents. That one's sometimes easy to do, sometimes hard. Keep the Sabbath. Don't eat old meat. I guess beef jerky's out. Thank you. I got at least one laugh. That was a good one. Don't turn to mediums or spiritualists or psychics or um, necromancers, people who talk to the dead. Honor the elderly. The list goes on and on and on. The whole book of Leviticus, and particularly the holiness code, is full of these things that help us to know when we have become imperfect, unholy, and how to be restored to holiness, to perfection. What does it take to be holy? Well, it takes perfection. You have to follow it perfectly. And here's the deal. You can't. You just can't. You cannot be perfect. You cannot be holy. And here's the bad news that turns out to be good news. God's standard never changes. God's standard for perfection, God's standard for holiness is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So all of the laws in the book of Leviticus, all of the laws in the Old Testament, you must be holy. And then Jesus continues this in uh, Matthew 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount, the longest sermon Jesus is recorded to have preached. You, therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You must be perfect. And we're not. You're not perfect. I know, because I'm not perfect. And then the law, it, does, it doesn't just end with Jesus. In the early church, just after, after Christ died, was resurrected and ascended, the church starts to get formed. And Peter writes a letter. This is from 1 Peter 15, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That phrase, you shall be holy for I am holy, shows up 40 something times just in the holiness code alone. It's God's way of saying, here's the standard. The standard is me. I'm perfect and you're not. But you must be holy. You must be perfect because I am holy. Because I am perfect. These are commands. You must do this. You must. You must. And we don't. But the reason that this bad news becomes good news, the reason that God's standard never changes is actually really, really good news is because God's commands are actually God's promises. God's commands are God's promises. 
That's really good news. You must be holy. You will be holy. I promise. You must be perfect. You will be perfect. I promise. And, and why, why is that the case? Why, why is it that God's commands are God's promises? Well, I'll give you two reasons. The first reason is, is because of the Greek language. And you guys are just going to have to bear with me because this was my worst subject in seminary. Um, but I spent a lot of time reading a lot of people about this over the last couple of weeks. The, the verb in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, you must be holy. You must be. You must be. It's something called an aorist imperative perfect. An aorist imperative passive. The imperative part simply means that it is a demand. You've got to respond in some way to this. I'm, I'm asking something of you and you have to respond. It's an imperative. But it's passive. And a passive and an imperative and a passive imperative is a very particular kind of verb in the New Testament. It's used in lots of different places. One commentator called it the language of God's economy. It's how God works. It is a demand, but it is a passive demand. And that means that you are not the active doer. You're not. You are the recipient of someone else's doing. So when God says, you must be holy, you will be holy. The one who makes you holy is not you. It's not you. It's Jehovah Mekodishkin, the God who makes you holy. This is a name that comes all the way back from the holiness code. So right in the middle, uh, this is from... from um, <clears throat> This is from Levit Leviticus 20, verse 8. Keep my statutes and do them, for I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I am Jehovah Mekodishkim. Sanctifies the same word as holy. It's the one who makes you saintly. You can't do it. You're not supposed to. God is the one who has done it. Your holiness does not depend on who you are, on what you've done. It depends on what someone else has done and what, who someone else is. Your holiness depends on Jehovah Mekodishkin, the God who makes you holy. This is his name. This is, this is his identity. This is who God is. This is how he acts over and over and over again. So what do we do? What is our response to the God who makes us holy? Do we work harder? Do we do nothing? I would actually say that if those are the ways that you leave here, and if, that, if one of those is the way that you leave here, and what you do, God does not ask you to go and try harder. You can't do it. It will frustrate you. You will fail. You cannot make yourself holy. You cannot make yourself perfect. Some of, some of the spouses are like, yeah, I knew that. You can't make yourself perfect. You can't make yourself holy. Only God can do that. Jehovah 
Mekodishkim. And you can't do nothing. Just because you are not the active doer does not mean you do nothing. We are the recipients of someone else's active doing. And somehow we participate in that. There's something good and gift in being a part of what God is doing in our holiness making. So don't go home and do nothing. And don't go home and work harder. Instead, I suggest you take the advice of the anonymous author of Hebrews. who said this in chapter 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Another translation says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The word for fix your eyes is the same way that you do when when you gaze intently at something. And when you stare at something long enough, it's almost as if you are becoming a part of it. Like what is happening in looking at something is that you begin to identify with it. You begin to own it as part of your story. That's why some people can spend a long time in art museums. I can't do that. But when you stare at a piece of, of art long enough, you begin to see it. And we know this because we stare at stupid things all the time. And in some ways, we become kind of like them. But what if what you fixed your eyes on was the author and perfecter, the one who makes you perfect? What if we fix our eyes on Jesus? That could be like super good you could leave here and do nothing. Or you could leave here and do everything. But maybe what you need to do is to go home and fix your eyes on Jesus. And then he's going to show you something. He's going to ask you to do something or to do nothing. And you're going to do it because it's the right thing to do. Because he is the one who is asking you to do it. You don't have to work harder. You don't have to do nothing. In fact, those are the wrong things to do. Our response to the God who makes us holy is not to work harder. It's not to do nothing. Our response to the God who makes us holy is to fix our eyes on Jesus and live. What would happen if you did that? What would happen if you fixed your eyes on Jesus. Let me pray for us. Uh, Jesus, we know that you are super duper good and that everything you do, Father, Son, and Spirit, is really, 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 really good. So thank you, Lord, that you are the one who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. I thank you, Lord, that you are Jehovah Mekodishkin, the one who makes us holy. I can't do it. We can't do it. We are not designed to make ourselves holy. You are. So would you do that work in our lives ever so slowly, but ever so powerfully, because you are the one who does it. I pray for my friends here, the ones who come often, and the ones who are here today. Would you... Speak to them.
would you make them holy? Because it is the work that you delight to do. We love you, Lord. Help us to love you. Amen.